Welcome back to the last chapter. Now last week, we finished the story with Joseph revealing his identity. And he just sent his brothers back home to get Jacob and bring the whole family back to live in Egypt. And all at Pharaoh's expense. So Joseph settled his father and brothers in Egypt and made them proud owners of choice land and took good care of them. Once the famine really hit hard, the people had to trade everything they had, cash, livestock, and eventually their farms, and then with nothing left, even themselves as slaves, just to survive. So Pharaoh became rich, owning all the land and even most of the people. Jacob and his large family did pretty well too, and with the land gifted from Pharaoh, he became wealthy. But at 147 years old, the time came for him to die. Now, Jacob dying is a bit of a big deal for this story. There's a few chapters on what Jacob had to say and do before he passed on. He made Joseph promise to bury him in his own country with his ancestors. He then retells the prophetic blessing he received from God about becoming prosperous and numerous, becoming a congregation of tribes with land as a permanent inheritance. And this part, he blesses Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And this blessing is a big deal in that culture, so we'll highlight it here. He chose to place his hand on Ephraim, the younger one, not the older one, saying, The God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this very day, the angel who delivered me from every evil, bless these boys. May my name be echoed in their lives and the names of Abraham and Isaac, my fathers. And may they grow covering the earth with their children. When Joseph realized, he said, hey, that's the wrong head. Father, the other one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father wouldn't do it. He said, I know what I'm doing. Manasseh will also develop into a people and he will also be great. But this younger one, Ephraim, will be even greater and his descendants will enrich nations. The next thing Jacob did before he died was call his sons together and spoke about what would happen in the days to come for each son who were to make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And that takes up pretty much the whole chapter. But when Jacob finished instructing his sons, he pulled his feet into bed, breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And Joseph threw himself on his father, wept over him and kissed him. Joseph saw to it that everything he promised his father was done in the right cultural way, in the right field, in the right land, with the correct funeral rites being adhered to. After burying their father in Canaan, Joseph and his brothers returned to Egypt. The story doesn't end there. After the funeral, Joseph's brothers started talking among themselves. What if Joseph is carrying a grudge and decides to pay us back for all the wrong we did for him? So they sent Joseph a message. Before his death, your father gave this command. Tell Joseph, forgive your brother's sin, all that wrongdoing, 
They did treat you very badly. Will you do it? Will you forgive the sins of the servants of your father's God? And when Joseph received their message, he wept. Then the brothers went in person to him, threw themselves on the ground before him. They said, we will be your slaves. Joseph replied, don't be afraid. Do I act for God? Don't you see? You planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for my good. As you see all around you right now, life for many people. Take it easy now. You've got nothing to fear. I'll take care of you and your children. And he reassured them, speaking with them heart to heart. Now, Joseph continued to live in Egypt with his father's family and lived to be 110. He lived to see Ephraim's sons into the third generation. The end. Well, good morning, everybody. There's an ancient proverb that says, all sunshine and no rain makes for a desert. Meaning that if life is all rainbows and lollipops and unicorns and happy and sunshine, and there's never any rainy days or difficult moments, then nothing flourishes. There's a lot of sayings like that. Um, the, you never know how, hot, uh, how strong a tea bag is until you put it in hot water. And when two things go wrong in your life and your very well-meaning friends politely tell you, you know, they come in threes and they always do. Or the fact that when life gives you lemons, you're meant to make lemonade. Well, I want to say to life, enough hot water. And I want to say to life, I don't want your stinking lemons. You can have them back. I wonder if you've ever been in a place where you've said enough, enough already, enough. So we're talking about this topic of Joseph and we're thinking about growing pains and I think that there may have been times in life where Joseph said enough, enough already, enough. But the reality is God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph when his brothers were jealous of him and threw him in the pit. God was with Joseph when they sold him into slavery and he ended up working for Potiphar. God was with him when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him and they put him in jail. God was with him. God was with him when Joseph's brothers came back and stood before him and needed help. God was with Joseph when he offered forgiveness to them. God was with Joseph. I wonder if in those moments when Joseph was in that pit and his brothers were preparing to sell him, or when Joseph was in that jail falsely accused, I wonder whether he said, enough, enough already, enough of this rainy, hot water, lemony kind of life, enough. We don't know, but we do know that God was with him. So I want to think for a minute about life. Life does have troubles. Life just does have troubles. And sorry, I've just lost my train of thought. I want to go back to the story. I wonder if Joseph was thinking about the idea of enough God. There was this moment in the story when Joseph looked at his brothers 
because his father had passed away and they'd come back from the funeral and his brothers said to him, please, please forgive us. Don't, don't seek revenge on us. Please, we're begging you. Our father said, don't get, seek revenge on us. And Joseph looked back at those brothers and he wept. I wonder if he wept because they just didn't get it. He'd offered them forgiveness and they just didn't get it. Or I wondered if he wept because this is just so hard. This life is so hard, uh, I wonder. And what I, what I love about his response is it's actually not a very natural and normal human response. This is what he says to those brothers. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Or the way Peter said is, don't be afraid. Do I act for God? Don't you see? You planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for good. Take it easy. I love the way Peter puts it. But in that moment when Joseph delivered that enormous perspective thought to those brothers... I sometimes feel a bit, wow, where did he get that kind of perspective? Life had thrown him lemons. There were difficulties left, right and centre in his story. And yet he still stood beside those brothers and said, you intended it for evil, but God took what you intended and he made it for good for the purpose of saving many lives. There are lots of things that are difficult in life. Life does bring us pits like this one. Sometimes whatever it is, whatever we've done that has caused us to fall into a pit or that's been done to us that has caused us to fall into a pit, sometimes we end up in the bottom of a pit and it is a really hard place to claw your way out of. Straight sides, very difficult, very deep and very dark. Sometimes in life we come crashing right up against a wall. I want to show you a little diagram to help us think about sometimes what it feels like when we hit those walls in our life. Uh, this is called um, a journey of faith. And so in our first stage of following Jesus or finding faith in God, we actually discover who he is in stage one. In stage two, we begin to get grown and formed and taught about who he is. And in stage three, we get activated in terms of how we live out our life for God. And in stage four, we begin that process of actually going deeper into who he is. And sometimes in that stage, we hit a wall and we come up against something that life has thrown us. It might be an illness. It might be uh, a broken relationship. It might be a loss of some sort. Whatever it is, it is such a big thing. It feels like we have come up against a brick wall and, and we're stalled a little bit. The other thing sometimes life throws at us is a long, relentless, painful valley where it just feels like that valley is never going to end and you need to continue to march forward in it. And it may well be that it's one of those things where life has not panned out the way you thought or you're in a situation where you cannot see where the finish line is going to be and when things are going to return to normal. A really long, difficult, dark valley. And Psalm 23 actually talks about this idea of even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. At this shadow of death or, or the shadowy part of life or the darkness, sometimes they're really difficult places to be. 
I don't know about you, but for me, in those moments, in the pits or pressed up against a wall or marching through a dark valley, sometimes I have a tendency to say, God, why didn't you? Why haven't you? Why aren't you? Why don't you? And I wonder why God isn't solving the situations or changing the things that are happening around me. I wonder if that's something that you do, where you question God and his potency in, in the world. Sometimes in those moments, we can actually look at things in the wrong way. We can have a wrong framework, a wrong way of looking at the world, a wrong way of looking at God. Uh, and one of the ways of thinking could be, when life is good, God is good. But that means sometimes the inverse becomes true. Life is bad, so God must be bad. When life is good, God must be present. When life is bad, God must be absent. When life is good, God is involved. When life is bad, God must be not involved. And that's actually a wrong thinking. I remember years ago when I was in Africa and I was in a church and one of the things that they did in this church was that they would say, the person at the front would say, God is good. And the people would say, all the time. And then the person up the front would say, all the time. And the people in the congregation would say, God is good. And they would do this little backwards and forwards. And God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And I sat there and went, how do they even know that? I've looked around. There is not enough clean water. There is not enough health care. These people are in deep need. How do they know God is good? I think I lived in a wrong framework. I think I lived in the framework that if life is good, God must be good. But if life is bad, God must be bad. And I think that's a wrong framework. I wonder if we need to re-pack that, re-question our questioning and not ask, should God be doing things or why isn't God doing things? But ask the question, is God there? Is God present? During this COVID lockdown time, I've been revisiting um, C.S. Lewis's Narnia series and I've been really enjoying it. And I've been reading this one in particular, The Horse and His Boy, with my youngest, Charlie. And I want to read some of it to you today. And I, I think it gives us a really interesting way of thinking about God and being present. So the backstory is Shasta is a young boy and he has just discovered that he, he's, the man he thought was his father actually isn't, that he was found in a boat and kept by this particular man who he thought was his father and he'd lived a really hard life and he'd just heard through the window that he was about to be sold by this man he thought was his father and he was devastated. So he made a decision to run away and of course in running away the horse he decided to run away with was a talking horse because this is the story of Narnia. And there's a point in the story where our boy Shasta has been through all sorts of difficulties. He's, he's lived all sorts of difficult moments, not only the moment of discovering that his father isn't who he said, not only the moment of realising he's going to be sold, not only the moment of um, being lost uh, in, in a tomb area at night in the dark, not only having to march his way across a desert and, and, and almost dying of thirst, uh, being chased by lions and all sorts of other really difficult things, there's this moment in the story 
when he says this. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone else except me. And being very tired and having nothing left inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing and the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature and he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he hardly had any idea how long it had been there. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he'd only imagined it. But that didn't last long because suddenly he felt a hot breath of a sigh on his chilly right hand. Who are you? He said in a little whisper. The one who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing, its voice not very loud but very large and very deep. Shasta goes on to tell this companion beside him of all of the dramas of his life, of all of the difficulties, of all of the sorrows, of all of the pains, of of having to spend a cold, dark night um, in the tombs and and being comforted by a cat and and how one time lions chased him that enabled him to join with another travelling companion, um, Arvis. And eventually, the voice beside him says, "'I do not call you unfortunate.'" I was the lion. And Shasta gasped with an open mouth and said nothing. And the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Arvis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion that gave the horses new strength to run the last mile to to get to King Loon in time. I was the lion who you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat watchful at night to receive you. I was that lion. What a beautiful image of walking along in the darkness, wondering where life was even going to go and how Shasta would endure all of the things that he'd been through And here's a companion beside him who says, I was there. I was that lion. I was that lion. I wonder if the right question in a story like Joseph's or in our own is when it's difficult, not to say, God, why did you? Or God, why didn't you? Or God, why haven't you? Or God, why aren't you? But to say, God, are you there? to ask the question, was God there? So some time ago, I was in a not-so-great not so place. I was really struggling with a few questions that I had, and they were questions like, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, why aren't you? God, why haven't you? God, why didn't you? And I was standing in my lounge room, and I was looking out my windows, and out my front windows, I can see the Dandenong Ranges. And I remember looking at the Dandenong Ranges and saying, 
God, but why didn't you do this that I really wanted you to do? And I remember looking at the Dandenong Ranges and saying, huh, you say you can move a mountain, but you can't do these things? And there was a little sinking in my heart. And I walked away from the window and I went to another part of my house, which is an adjacent room uh, further down. And I remember going into the bathroom and my bathroom's on a different wall to the front windows. And I picked up my toothbrush and I just happened to glance out, out my bathroom window. And lo and behold, if for the first time in my life, I had noticed that you can see the dandenongs from my bathroom window. I had never noticed that. And in that moment, I didn't do that. Oh, of course, that window's on that wall. I didn't do that. I heard God say, I can do it. I'll just do it in a way that you're not expecting. I'll do it in my way. Don't think I can't move mountains. I can move mountains. I just don't do it in the way you're expecting. But I'm here. And in that moment, God told me for sure that he was present with me in that place and in that time. I wonder about those moments when we're in the pit or we're pressed up against the wall and the framework that we've always had is not sufficient. Our understanding does not work. I wonder if the question we need to ask is, are you there? Are you there, God? It's really important not to assume that silence is absence. Silence is not absence. Hiddenness is not impotence. Just because you cannot hear God in the way you're expecting doesn't mean he's not there. Just because you can't see God in the way you always have doesn't mean that he's not participating and not at work. Silence is not absence. Hiddenness is not impotence. Thinking about the the Dandenong Ranges and looking at them, I've actually been doing a bit of work in terms of my own spiritual journey and what it means for me to not be able to see God in the way that I used to. And I've been thinking about this idea that perhaps in the past, when I looked at God, I thought I was seeing the breadth and width of God. But actually now, I've been through a few dark valleys, I think perhaps I was only looking at the foothills. And perhaps now, I'm further in, deeper in, And actually, the the great mountain looms so close that I can't see it. A bit like I can't see the woods for the I can't see the woods for the trees. And and the view I have has shifted and has changed. And I need to have a fresh look, with fresh eyes, and not assume that silence and hiddenness mean God's not there. I need to to have a look with fresh eyes. Often, I'm going to read this. Often when things look like they've gone the most wrong is when God is most working for our good. And I think that's true. So thinking about the Joseph story, how do we know God was with Joseph? And I thought about it a little bit and I went, well, it tells me so in the story. It tells me so in the text. But it must tell me so because Joseph must have declared it so. Joseph must have told... And in those moments when it was darkest, God was with me. And that's why when the story was recorded, it's in there and it's in there and it's in there and it's in there. Joseph must have had those moments when he was alone and lost and it was dark 
and he was disoriented. He must have said, God, where are you? And he must have discovered that God was, in fact, there. I think he must have known the presence of God. He must have known the powerful transformation of God in those really dark moments because I don't think he would have been able to give the reply that he gave to those brothers in that moment when they came to him and said, please don't seek revenge on us for what we've done because he said these things. Am I God? No, I'm not God. God can seek revenge. That's his thing. That's not my thing. And he said, you meant it to harm me. That was truth. He knew that was the truth. They did mean it to harm him. But he knew without a doubt in his soul that God meant it for good. God took their actions and made it for good so that many lives would be saved. There's another reason why I can feel sure that God is with us and not just with Joseph. And that's because there is another there is another who could well say the same thing that Joseph said. There is another who could say, they meant it to harm me, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. There is another. There's another who went into a faraway land. There is another whose garment was taken the way Joseph's garment was taken. There is another who was falsely accused. There is another who ended up in a pit. There is another, and that person is Jesus. Jesus came into this world. God came into this world in the person of Jesus. Jesus' garment was taken from him as he was about to be crucified. Jesus had been falsely accused and went willingly into the pit which was the tomb. There is another who could say, they meant it to harm me, but God took those actions to bring about a much greater good and to save many lives. God did not leave us alone. He did not leave us alone to wander this earth in mess and chaos. He took on flesh and came and walked with us. And he made a way for us to be saved from the chaos, to be put back right into relationship with God. And not only did he walk with us and make that way for us through his death and resurrection, but he also left the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, to journey with us and to comfort us and to speak when it is quiet and dark and we're just not sure. That's how I know Joseph wasn't alone. That's how I know I'm not alone. So when the things of life don't pan out the way I think they should, when I find myself in a pit or I find myself pressed up against a wall and I simply cannot push forward because I just don't know what God is doing and I have to think and I have to, I have to dig down into that wall and I have to push my way through it and I have to fight because I do know that God is with me. So a few things that I've learned that help in those moments. The first one is take a closer look for evidence of the presence of God. In the story of Shasta, 
there is a lovely moment when he's, uh, he's been found by his people and he's safe once more and they're heading back out and he's with a mighty army of people and he's riding a horse and it's the bright light of day after his dark night. And he, this is what happens. The hillside path which they were following became narrower all the time and the long drop to the right had become steeper. At last they were going in single file along the edge of a precipice and Shasta shuddered to think that he had done that same thing last night without knowing it. But of course he thought, I was quite safe. That's why the lion kept on my left. He was between me and the edge all the time. In those moments when we just don't know, look back and see if there's any evidence of God's presence. A while back when I, when I was really struggling and there were some times when I, I, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't get out from under the doona. Life was really complicated. And those moments when I actually did and I wrestled my way through and I had to go through the things of life and I got in my car and, and started to head somewhere back when we could head somewhere. And I would hop in my car and I would turn the car on every single time the same song would come on. It was George Ezra and it was the line, Hold My Girl. Give me a minute to hold my girl. And it was almost as if God was saying to me, just rest in me. I've got you. You're going to be okay. Give me a minute to hold my girl. I, I look back now and I see evidence of God's presence. He was there. So look for evidence. The second thing is borrow hope from others. If you are just not sure, then go find people who you know know God well and ask them to remind you of who he is. Ask them to remind you of God's qualities. Ask them to remind you that they believe that he is there. He is the same today, yesterday, tomorrow. He is steadfast and he promises that he will be with us and never leave us or forsake us. Ask people to remind you. Gather around you wise people who know God. And can remind you. Thirdly, just own some of those truths that you know or that are in the Bible. Years ago, someone gave me um, a little book of promises of God. And it was all these little promises that are throughout the Bible. And I remember reading them and reading them and reading them and going, well, then they, they must be promises for me because I'm a person too. Uh, and I remember thinking I better hold on to them. In the, in, the, in the psalm about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the psalmist goes on and says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I don't think that we borrowed the rod and staff and carried them through the valley by ourselves. I don't think we walked through the valley by ourselves remembering that he has a rod and a staff, a protection and a guidance. I think, I think the psalmist says, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and your rod and your staff, they comfort me, it's because he is there with us, carrying them beside us. He is walking beside us in those moments. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, it says, I am with you always. Not I am with you sometimes, not I am with you in the bright, shiny bits. 
Not I am with you when it seems like I am with you. I am with you always. That's just the end of it. He is. And the last thing is walk through. Don't, don't stop. Don't slump down in the bottom of the pit and stay there forever. Call out for help. Don't hit the wall and ricochet off and walk away from everything you've ever known. Dig, fight, push, reach out. And it says, even though I walk through the valley, walk through the valley, don't set up camp, don't stay there forever, look for some higher ground to get some better perspective and press through the valley. I wonder if in those moments we actually listen for the presence of God. Might we find ourselves millimetres away from the very breath of God himself. To finish, we're going to sing a song. It's called Raise a Hallelujah. And when I listened to it, I thought to myself, I need this. I really need this. I need to, in those moments, choose to raise a hallelujah. It doesn't necessarily come easily when you're in tough places. You have to raise it. You have to dig for it and you have to declare it. Um, So you might be somebody today who has looked back and said, God is with me always and I have known it so many times, then raise a hallelujah, raise a praise. You might be somebody who has never walked through a hard moment or found themselves in a pit or found yourselves pressed up against a wall, then raise a hallelujah because you're going to need it one day and you want to have that hidden in your heart, ready to dig up and raise. Or if you just don't know it and you are sitting there today going, well, you might be right, but I'm not sure, then raise a hallelujah anyway. Raise one just in case God is with you. In advance, just in case. Sometimes life gives us lemons. Sometimes we find ourselves in hot water and have to work out if we're strong or not. And sometimes it's not all sunshine, there are downpours. But in the downpours is where the flourishing occurs. That's where the real growth happens, in the growing pains, in the hard moments. So join with me and raise a hallelujah.